Live at Three Arena, Saturday, October 7th. Well, I'd rather look like Ron Weasley than Shrek. Tickets available now. Don't worry, that is a joke. I didn't actually say that. But I thought of it. <laughs> so I'm going to hell. Presented by Aiken Promotions. Comedy updates on RTE Radio 1. Remember your first wheels. Forget 123.ie. Remember your first family car. Forget 123.ie. With more benefits included than almost any car insurer in Ireland, you can spend more time remembering the important things and forget us until you need us. 123.ie. Give better a try. Acceptance criteria T's and C's apply based on comparative research from August 2022. 123 Money Limited trading as 123.ie is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. RSA Insurance Ireland DAC provides 123.ie car insurance. We shall sample some flora and fauna in the Garden County. That's coming up on Mooney Goes Wild in just a few minutes' time here on RT Radio 1. After the news now at 10 with Shane McGowan. Two people have been killed in a road traffic crash in County Monaghan. Gardy said it happened near Clonus on the N54 Clonus to Monaghan Road at a quarter to seven this evening. Three other people were injured and have been taken to hospital. Two of the injured are in a critical condition. It's understood that all five people were travelling in the same vehicle when it crashed. Gardy said emergency services are at the scene of the incident. The road has been closed and diversions are in place. The government has said state agencies would work with the 890 people who were informed today that their jobs at a management consultancy were being cut. Accenture currently employs around 6,500 people in Ireland. The company said it remained committed to its Irish bases business, which it said continued to perform strongly. The Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Simon Coveney, said the workers involved were in a highly skilled sector and that state agencies would work with them to assess openings elsewhere in the economy. At the Special Criminal Court, one of the most significant drug dealers in the west and northwest of Ireland has been sentenced to 12 years in prison with the final year suspended for directing the activities of one of the four organised crime gangs operating in Sligo. 38-year-old Barry Young from Geldof Drive in Sligo led the criminal enterprise and organised the delivery and supply of drugs, along with threats and violence. At the FIFA Women's World Cup, the Irish team are preparing to leave Australia tomorrow to return home. Their campaign came to an end today when they finished with a nil-nil draw against Nigeria in Brisbane. The draw in Ireland's third and final game gave them their first ever Women's World Cup point. Nigeria joined Australia to progress to the knockout stages of the competition. A homecoming event for the Irish team will be held in Dublin on Thursday. The Ireland manager Vera Powell said it was for others to decide her future with the women's team. Outside Brisbane Stadium, Ireland fans said the team had made them proud. Very good. The girls are great. Very proud of them. They've done a great job, didn't they, Tony? Yeah. They gave it their all. Like, you know, they, were, they were solid. You know what I mean? They were probably the better team overall. So. We're very proud of them. Oh, yeah, very yeah, proud. Very Come proud on, the girls in green. Great game. Shame about the outcome. But we enjoyed it, hey? Yeah. The atmosphere is amazing. I think the place is full of Irish in there, so it was a great game to be at. Do you see how far women's football has came on from when I played football? Uh, my heart, just so proud. 
Almost 90 motorists inadvertently filled their petrol vehicles with diesel after a Circle K garage put the wrong fuel into its petrol pumps last Saturday. The company has launched an investigation into the error. The incident happened at the Circle K service station at Kill North on the northbound lane of the N7. RTE Radio 1 Weather with Grant. Building a new home? Trust Grant to help you on your heating journey with their home heating design service. Visit grant.ie. A mix of clear spells and scattered showers tonight. These will gradually become more isolated. Lowest temperatures, 12 to 14 degrees. Tomorrow, mainly dry and bright in the morning with isolated showers. More persistent rain moving in over Munster later in the day and extending to much of Leinster and Connacht by nightfall. Highest temperatures, 17 to 20 degrees. That's all from the newsroom for the moment. Email mooney at rte.ie Usually, a radio ad is recorded in a recording studio. Today, I'm phoning this one in on my run. But I didn't want to carry my phone. So for the first time, I'm calling for my smartwatch. Because only Vodafone's one number lets me share my mobile plan and number with my smartwatch. So I can stay connected everywhere, even without a phone. This is one number, only with Vodafone. Available to customers on a 12 or 24 month red unlimited plan. Eligibility, limitations and terms apply. See Vodafone.ie forward slash terms. When you want to get the job done, you need Screwfix. Need something fast? Easy. With Screwfix, you can click and collect in as little as one minute. Need it early or late? We hear you. With 7am to 8pm opening weekdays and early opening on weekends, we don't clock off till you do. Simply shop online at screwfix.ie or in over 35 stores. Screwfix, the choice of champions. Big RTE Alnick Krillabio or RTE Radio One, Magas or RTE Radio Nagartachta, Big Elin. Unwilling Gar, on Sheu Logadi and Kaharu Lodia Glunasa. Coltus, Fla Huel Naharan. The Chokyucht or RTE. Liveline with Joe Duffy. It came by chance. It was like somebody said to me for the crack one day, how many times do you think you could actually run up and down Crofat? Because because I train there so often, I, I've gone up there five times on a Saturday and maybe another three or four times on a Sunday because I just do that for training, for fun. Like, and, um, Sorry, let me just start. I, I'm going to stop you there, Ricky. Are you telling me that you run up Croke Patrick five times on a Sunday for fun? Yeah, exactly. But like that, I, I am a mountain runner. Like, So I spend... There's no better place to train than Crowpatrick. There's no better mountain in Ireland. Liveline with Joe Duffy. Weekdays from 1.45 on RTE Radio 1 and the RTE Radio app. On this week's Out and Proud, actor, screenwriter and playwright Marco Halloran talks about finding his tribe, falling in love and claiming his space. And you'd meet Seamus then on the street afterwards and you'd go, how is Seamus? And you'd go, that's not my name, my name's actually John. Everyone had a code or a name that wasn't their own because everyone was hiding, even in the gay bars they were hiding with another identity. And really, I was just not having any of that. And I think I was part of a generation that suddenly kind of breathed out and said, right, enough is enough. Join me, Trevor Keegan, for Out and Proud. Choose the night at 10 on RTE Radio 1 and the RTE Radio app. Perfect moon, I am calling. Perfect moon, clad in pure, I approach. On Tuesday night, it's just a phase. La Luna and love. Oft 
to see the world There's such a lot of world to see Lunar Tunes with me, Carol Moran Tuesday night, half past ten on RTE Radio 1 Monday night, that means the great outdoors beckon as we join Derek and team on Mooney Goes Wild. Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. A lovely programme ahead of us tonight, I think I can safely say. Richard Collins joins me from his home in Malahide, and we'll be hearing from the rest of the gang as the programme progresses. But Richard, I believe you were in the Botanic Gardens recently. I was. I'm there quite often, actually. Mm. Uh, but the particular visit was to take the grandchildren, some of them. Uh, they're, they're all keen photographers now and wildlife photographers in their way. The cameras are wonderful now and the small boys can uh, take wonderful pictures and small girls too. But they loved it. They went to see your pictures on display and had all kinds of interesting comments to make about them. Oh, the uh, Eye on was, Nature display, which is... The a Eye on Nature, yes. Gardens, wonderful, yes. wonderful. Had yeah, you got uh, a favourite yourself now that the I, winner... I, the one uh, that I would be proud of if I had taken especially proud of I'd be proud of any of them but I'd be especially proud of the otter and the lamprey now that is an extraordinary picture because on the one hand lampreys are very very difficult to see they're nobody most people don't ever see a lamprey in those of their well you lives. better explain what a lamprey is richard well, a lamprey is a very primitive form of fish that sucks the blood of salmon and things like that it's eel like but it's not an eel it's a very primitive form of fish and there's a lovely picture of one caught by an otter on a rock in the midst of a great stream mm. it's hard enough to get a picture of an otter but it seems to me impossible to get a picture of a lamprey. <laughs> and here you have the two of them in the one picture, the otter and the lamprey, and then the extraordinary, and it's static. The two of them, it's a frozen moment, but all around it you have this wonderful stream of white water rushing past the well, flux of time. for you, Richard. That picture wasn't even in the final ten. That was one of the notables. We could have had two and a half thousand notables. All of the photographs were fantastic this year. But it was a wonderful shot, Derek. It really was. Anyway, we want to thank each and every one of you again for your awesome participation in this year's Ion Nature Wildlife Photography Competition. It's been quite incredible how so many of you, our listeners, have responded to this competition in recent years, sending in thousands upon thousands of images of the wildlife in your area. So once again, thank you very much indeed, and we look forward to next year. And speaking of wildlife photography, from the daintiest alpine flowers in bloom in the burren to dolphins skimming the waters of the Shannon Estuary to the majestic red stags of Killarney National Park. These are just some of the many scenes reproduced in a dazzling new photography book. It's called Wild Ireland, a nature journey from shore to peak. And author Karsten Krieger joins us now from the Loophead Peninsula in County Clare where he's based. Hello Karsten, how are you today? Tell us all about your book. Hi Derek, thanks for having me. Um, but the book has been in the making quite a while, more or less since I moved over to Ireland in 2002. The first 
thing I, I had set as my goal after moving over here is um, build a career as a photographer. And I always wanted to make a photo book on the Baron because for whatever reason, um, nobody had ever done it. And then after I had finished that book, I got a bit more insight in, into natural history and nature and wildlife of Ireland. I thought that it might be a good idea to make a book about Ireland's nature. Unfortunately, back then, um, na nature and, and wildlife wasn't of much interest or not of that much interest as it is today. So I got turned down from almost every publisher and the idea for the book um, went into a drawer and stayed there for quite some years. In the meantime, I started working as a photographer, ended up in the, in the tourism sector. But after an almost 20 years of traveling island, making pictures of nice landscapes and happy people, I got a bit fed up with the, with the tourism business. And shortly before the pandemic, I decided to scale my commercial endeavors in, in photography back a bit and revisit um, what I initially wanted to do and started working on a concept for Wild Island and started making images, started writing. Then the pandemic hit and stopped me in my tracks again. Oh dear, how unlucky can one man be? But you've got there in the end. So how much of the book is pictures and how much is text? It's it's about 50-50. Initially, when, when I started my career as a photographer, writing wasn't really on, on the plate. But over the years, um, my publisher, which over the years was, was mainly the O'Brien Press, um, pushed me a little bit. And with, with every book I, I made, a bit more text snuck in. And I got a taste of it. And I and enjoyed writing and... And then Wild Island was really the first book where I really could indulge in, in, in the writing process. Richard, I know you've seen the book and you have some questions too for Karsten. Karsten, um, congratulations on a fine book, which is a joy to read, I must say. It's very comprehensive. It covers all the various habitats. I think the approach is a good one. People who make these kind of books generally have beautiful pictures confined to the wildlife. Lovely pictures of puffins and ravens and uh, this and that and foxes, pine martens. But uh, you go further. You integrate it. You have pictures of places like Money Point, uh, the great Behem of the, uh, the Shannon Estuary and Tarbert's Power Station and things like that. So you, you have an integrative approach. Now people will look at the photographs and they will be led then into the text and it's a great inducement I think to have lovely photographs lead people into reading the text and then they will discover things that they didn't know about the various uh, creatures. Uh, was that your conscious approach? That, that was the idea behind the book. Um, when I grew up, um, as you said, there were either very dry scientific books on natural history or very nice um, photo books with, with beautiful photographs. I never saw one that combined the both. And I know from, from my own experience and from experience with my children, um, not everybody um, is that interested in nature to, to endeavor writing a, a uh, reading a scientific book. Um, so I was hoping that, that the approach to, to use photographs to, as you said, draw the readers in and then entice them 
to read the text and learn a little bit more. That, that is the hope for the book, and, and, and I hope that, that it will work. You spent more than 20 years travelling Ireland. Now, in Germany, you have a right to roam, I think, haven't you? You can go where you like, provided you don't do any harm or interfere with livestock or anything else. But in Ireland, there are barriers everywhere and barbed wire and people, farmers and landowners generally, are reluctant to have people wandering around their property. Did you find that or was that a problem? It wasn't a problem for me because I didn't make it a problem. I, I was aware um, of many farmers um, not being too keen of having people on their land. So when I made the book, I mostly stuck to um, the national parks and nature reserves, or I did some inquiries beforehand, found out who owned the land and approached them and asked for permission to, to enter. And in most occasions, um, that worked out fine. I think when farmers get, get angry, it's because people just trample ac across their land without asking beforehand. And very often there's, there's livestock on the land and people leave gates open. I think that that's the kind of behaviour that causes the problems. You've covered all the habitats. Do you feel that some of them are not as fully covered as you would have liked or so forth? Are you some biases there? Yes, unfortunately I do. We had to cut a few things out of, of the book because in the end it was just too much material. And um, I'm actually waiting for people to complain that um, wildflowers as such are not covered enough or especially the, the, the coastal waters. Um, you might have noticed that whales and dolphins and, and, and all the other marine animals are not very well represented. And um, yeah, these are areas we just had to cut, but it was just a question of space. Well, hopefully, maybe sometime in the future, there will be a wild island part two where we can rectify that situation. I've no doubt that you will, and there will be a second edition, please God. Now, you didn't get all the whales and dolphins in, but you did get other marine mammals, such as the grey seal. So let's have a look at some of those photographs, and perhaps we'll start there with the grey seal. Um, the grey seal, yeah, that was made close to where I live, more or less just, just down the road during the first lockdown. It's a place known locally as Ross Bay, and it's known as a haulout for grey seals. Usually they just hang out um, on the rocks as they do. But this one in the picture um, was throwing away around, um, apparently playing with seaweed, and then again standing upside down so that only the back flippers were, were standing out of the water. And it was quite an impressive display. And up to today, I, I'm not very sure what they were doing. I assume... They might be have been searching for flat fish on the on the bottom of the bay, or really just using the seaweed to to play and have some fun. Mm, now moving on to page ninety six, and it's a wonderful photograph. The perfect morning, I think, taken in Killarney National Park. Uh, yeah, that was made uh, at Killarney National Park. Um, the picture shows the upper lake. As usual, when I wanted to photograph landscapes, I, I get up very early to be on location before the sun comes up. And here I was trying to catch the sunrise. So initially I had my turned my back to the scene you see in the picture, um, waiting for the sun to come up behind the mountains. And just by chance I turned around and saw that the, 
the rising sun was illuminating the clouds on the other side. And yeah, thankfully I turned around in that instance and didn't miss that, that spectacle. Yeah, even after 20 years um, visiting the Kilani National Park on a regular basis, this is one of the best pictures I ever made there. It really is a wonderful photograph. In fact, all of the photographs are good. Any one of them could win a photographic competition. But let's go on to another one here, which is lovely, made at Clue Bay, a native oak forest. Now, this is a really important photograph for all sorts of reasons. Would you like to explain? Um, that was a picture I had been after for a while because, as you and, and your listeners know, um, native oak forests are few and far between um, in Ireland and the bulk of them is in the southwest in, in, in Cork and Kerry, a good bit away from the coast. But I always had the vision to make a picture of oak forest at the seashore. And as far as I know, that oak forest at Old Head is the only one that, that fits the bill. So that picture was made on my, I think, fifth attempt. All the other times the, the weather or the tide got, got in the way, but that picture was made on, on a very nice summer morning with almost blue skies, the sun shining across the beach, and then in the distance you have the, the rock stretching out into the bay, and on top of the rock um, sits that old oak forest. And I like to believe that this is the way that um, Ireland must have looked like a few thousand years ago. Finally, I'm very interested in the photograph of the sparrow on page 118, not least because we made a documentary about sparrows some time ago and indeed a documentary about dandelions, which we just repeated last Monday right here on Mooney Goes Wild. And both the sparrow and the dandelion appear in this photograph. Yeah, I always um, like to get people to, to let their grass and the white flowers in the garden grow and we used that picture to to illustrate that um so that picture was made in in my own garden um some people would call my garden a mess but there it is so what i do i cut the grass um only two to three times a year once in autumn and then maybe once or twice in very early spring before the um growing season sets in and as a result, I have a lot of um, wildflowers, including um, dandelions, which are shown in the picture. And yeah, it, it just shows um, that these flowers are not only useful to provide food for the insects, but then also later when, when they've passed the flowering stage, have, have produced their seeds and the seeds are eaten by, by the local birds. Carsten, we had over 2,500 entries to this year's RTEI and Nature Wildlife Photography Competition. And as you heard Richard say earlier, the display is there for everybody to see at the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin, the display of the top 10 finalists and some notables. But at any rate, some of the finalists I spoke to said that they had studied the animals and got to know their ways and then lay in wait, if you like, to get that photograph. Others just happen to be lucky in the right place at the right time. I'm just wondering what your approach is. A um, bit of both ways. Um, I'm, I have to admit I'm not a very patient person, so um, many of my pictures are just by chance. Others, then again, um, 
when, when I really have an, have an image in mind, I study the animal, um, find out where they appear and when they appear and, and what would be the best time of day. What, is it the morning light or in, in, in the evening? And then um, I go for the picture. That's is especially true when, when, it, when it comes, comes to, to birds. They have their, their own patterns. We, we have a lot of wading birds here at the Shannon Estuary. And over the years, I found out that um, the best time to, to get good pictures of them is with, with the falling tide. When the tide is in, there's no reason for them to be there because all the, the mud flats are covered, so they can't get to the food. Same as when the tide is, is, is coming in, there's just not enough time for the birds to, to get to their prey. So they um, are around when, when the tide is going out and all the worms and other animals that hide in, in the mud um, are getting exposed and a little bit of unaware of what's happening and that's, that's the chance for the birds to get to them. And then that's the best time for me to get the picture. Well, however you get them, Karsten, they are terrific photographs. And can I just say, if you are photographing wild animals, please do not disturb them. In some cases, you actually need a licence to photograph birds, particularly during the breeding season. So do bear that in mind. Anyway, more details can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Karsten, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Derek. Speaking of books, a few weeks ago we had Declan Murphy on the programme, author of A Life in the Trees, a personal account of the great spotted woodpecker, amongst other titles. Anyway, our Terry Flanagan has been out with Declan again this week. Let's find out why, as we're joined by Terry Flanagan from his home in Dublin 15. Terence, you were in County Wicklow, what's going on? Yes, Derek, I was indeed. I was in the Garden County. Mm. And what better place to look at some of our native plants? And what better companion to have? Only author and naturalist Declan Morphy. Absolutely. Well, you know on this programme, Derek, over the last number of years, we've been making people aware of climate change and the effect it's having on our flora Mm -hmm. and fauna. Mm -hmm. And most of us are familiar with the loss of our birds and our insects, but our plants are often forgotten. So what did he show you? Where did he bring you? Well, he brought me along the coastline of County Wicklow to highlight the plight of two native plants that are affected by human activity and climate change. One of these is in serious trouble, but the other one, a plant that was declared extinct in Ireland in 2016, is now making a comeback, with thousands of them reappearing and flowering this year. Lovely. Mind your step there, Terry. Now, come over here and I'll show you something interesting. Right, we're down here on Morrow Beach, is that right? The Murrah in County Wicklow, yeah. it's a long shingle spit. Yeah, and um, it's a windy day here and we're, we're hiding in here behind the brolly, but we're, we're right at the path edge. Why? That's right, because this path is being eroded as we're actually looking at it here. You can see the erosion that's taking place. Now, we've come from the beach side and we can see that the erosion, it's gone in underneath about, what, half a metre or so? During the winter storms, um, we're getting more and more erosion coming in. It's eroding in under here and the top part of the path is falling down. Right, you I can, can see, see that. that. You can see, you can see that. it on the length of it. The whole hundreds length. of metres. Hundreds of metres going forward for kilometres. Mm. There is the, about... About a metre, metre and a half of cliff has fallen down onto the shingle beach. And why is that a worry to you? This stretch of the coast is great for a particular plant, a very special localised plant called the spring squill. Now the spring squill has a very, very 
small distribution in Ireland. Yeah. Have we got some of it here? Can you show we me We do, some? yes. Yeah. If you just look along the grass here, you can just see this plant here. This small God, little tiny. plant, uh, it's gone to seed. You can just see this small little seed cluster here. Yeah. It's a few little things and the leaves. It only grows in coastal turf, short coastal turf right. on the east coast of Ireland and the north coast, uh, the north and the northeast. Now, Wicklow Head, just behind us there. What's about three or four kilometres away? That's right. There's a small population on top of the headland there, and that's the most furthest southern point of the plant's distribution in Ireland. Right. There's none beyond Wicklow Head. And you only find it along the coast? Along the coast. Now, going north from Wicklow Head, we come to here the Murrah, which we have a nice population extending all the way along. Historically, there's a population on Bray, but there's no recent information on that. Then the next jump in its distribution is Hoth. Right. few areas there and then into Northern Ireland. Okay. Now, how now, far does it extend inwards here from just where we're standing? Where this plant is here, right. I walked all along this coast during May and the furthest plant I found inland was there. there. Now, that's less than a metre? Yes. It, it is right at the very edge. It likes short grass right beside the sea. Yeah. It and needs then, good drainage. And if you look under here, this, it's all shingle stone. It's really, really free draining. So this, this plant is in serious trouble. If the same amount of erosion takes place next winter as took place yeah. last winter, this plant will be gone from the whole stretch of the Murrah next year or the year after. Now, Wicklow, I think, is one of the strongholds for this plant. Is that right? It is. They, so to, to lose this population would be devastating? It would, because the only area we would have it left is Wicklow Head. And it's climate change that is driving this erosion. The other thing that's affected this little plant, one thing we've noticed very much this year, more so than other years, is there's a change in the flowering dates of many, many plants. Right. The spring squill last year along here was flowering towards the end of May. This year, when I came down at the end of May, it had finished flowering. I did see a flowering here early May, so it's getting earlier. So climate change is affecting the population regardless of whether it's going to be killed off by er the erosion. So the whole species is at risk. But this stretch here, this will be one of the last stretches on the real low coastal turf. Mm. And the flora of Wicklow, written many, many years ago, described it as being very frequent and quite numerous along the Murrah. Well, that's not going to be the case in two years' time probably going to be gone in two years time because well, it's been a real eye-opener to me and i'll tell you why Declan. when you say that this plant I'm, well, I'm looking at beach here that's probably a couple of kilometers long but this particular plant only lives in literally less than a meter of that so yes. that if we have bad storms this winter this plant will be gone it'll be completely well, gone from this area well i'm going to show you some just to, to really emphasize how this is actually happening as we watch as you can see, the, the cliff top that has fallen down here, yeah. this fell down late this spring. It's growing on the top of that. So, so it's really on the beach? It's on the beach. Now, it can't, that's not its habitat because it, it's fallen down from its habitat. So when the next winter storms come in, all the ones on the beach will be inundated with salt water, killed and washed out. So they fell down this year. So the next ones to fall down are this one. Yeah, yeah. So he's going to fall down. Right. And that's him gone. And that's it. And they're gone. They're gone. And you can't bring it back. You can't transplant it. Yeah. Like, a, as you said, that one there, it doesn't grow two metres in. So you can't transplant it. You can't do anything. Mm. So it is one of the losses we are seeing. And w there's an awful lot of talk about climate change. But I think what some of the changes in people's minds are slow. 
they're happening over a period of time. We're saying that like in 2050, this will happen and that. This is something that's quite frightening. We're, it's happening as we watch it. That you're looking at, the, you're standing on a plant that's going to become extinct locally from this area due to climate change and the effects of climate change. And that's going to happen in one, two, three years? Yes. Not 10, 20 or 50? And there's, there's nothing we can really do because we need to do it now as in today and that's just not practical look at the length of the coastline here it's several kilometres long we can't just suddenly fix several kilometres of coastline in a matter of weeks it's an enormous job and it is a job that this stretch of the Murray will be protected I mean the county council are fully aware of the erosion but it it involves a long term plan unfortunately some of our wildlife won't survive long enough by the time these plans are implemented there's going to be losses and this is one of the losses now all we can hope is that the plant itself survives in the other locations that are safe from erosion but sadly this particular population there's no hope for it well this may be a sad story, but you're also going to take me to somewhere in County Wicklow, not very far from here, 10 kilometres or so, where there is a good news story. That's right, because one of the things that we always say about the climate change is that there's gains and losses. Species are moving around, they're changing because of the effects of climate change. So this is one that's not coping well, but we have a very successful story, and it's a plant called meadow saxifrage. OK, well, let's pack up everything here and... Uh We'll get our stuff together and we'll head up. Now we're after moving about 10 kilometres further south in County Wicklow. In a sand dunes just behind a popular beach, you've come to show me a different plant here. A plant that I actually thought was extinct in Ireland. Well, it was declared extinct in Ireland in 2016. And it's a very interesting history, this plant. This is the meadow saxifrage. And it was first found here in 1985 by one of Ireland's leading botanists. They then came back the following years and couldn't find it. Even though they knew the area it was in, they searched the area, they couldn't find it. And they searched several times over the years and it was never seen again. Mm. And in 2016, it was declared extinct. And then 2019, it was found in exactly the same spot again. Right, so the plant had disappeared completely, but I'm sure that seeds must have been still in the soil. That's right. That's why we can never really say that something is truly gone. Mm. It may not be flowering. It may be waiting for the perfect time. It may be waiting for the perfect conditions. But when we say a plant used to grow here and doesn't grow here anymore, it's extinct, we can't say that for certain. And we know some seeds remain viable for hundreds and hundreds of years until conditions are right. And that's what's happened to this plant. And here it is. When they were found in 2019, there was only a small number of plants found. And they were seen subsequently each year. But this, in, in this particular, in this particular spot. spot where we're standing, where everybody is walking along. Well, and walking. I was just going to ask, you, if, you, if I think of something like Kilcool Beach, which is again in County Wicklow, where you've got the terns nesting, and, and because we want to look after their small numbers of those terns, we put wardens up, we fence it off, we tell people to keep away. There's nothing like that here. No, and everybody is walking, as you say, on top of us, quite literally. We can hear the cars in the car park, we can watch people walking by. Yeah. And, and that's because you've got to be very careful when you protect that you know what the habitat is. Yeah. And some plants like open soil, disturbed soil, and some plants cope with being walked on. So if you fence off an area, what would happen here is, if you fence this area off around us here, is there will be no people going across, there'll be no animals coming in. You'd get all the tall, coarse species would grow up. They'd swamp out the saxifrage and it'd be gone. So we'd actually, by protecting it like that, we'd defeat it. 
So it is well able to cope. As you can see from the leaves, the leaves are all flat to the ground. So when someone stands on them, they don't break them. Yeah. And that's how it's adapted. That's how it's adapted. And it flowers in early May. And these sand dunes, the crowds don't come down to sunbathe in late April, early May. So by the time the plant has finished flowering is when people arrive and they don't see it. It's a bit like the um, primroses and the bluebells. Get the life cycle over early. Yes, yes. That's 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 exactly what what it's done. But you know what I I can't understand is that the plant has disappeared. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's say the the seeds were still in the soil. What has happened in the last couple of years that they've reappeared, that they've started to grow again? Now, this connects us in with the spring squill that we discussed earlier. We're seeing changes with all the plants and with animals and birds as well, and they're linked into climate change. We don't know, necessarily know how with every individual case. Something has changed, you're right. Something has changed since 1980, 1985, and what's changed, as we know, the climate is changing. But how has this benefited this plant? It's still very early to say, but there's two strong theories. One is the summers have gotten an awful lot hotter. And what that's done is it's causing drought conditions so other plants are dying out. So there's less competition. So plants that would have grown here, like bird's foot, trefoil, kidney, vetch and all that, they're struggling to survive. So they're dying back. So it has less competition. That's one possibility. This year, March was extremely wet. And that's when the, the, the saxifrage was starting to grow. Maybe the extra amount of rain in what's normally a very well-irrigated, dry habitat gave it an extra burst to enable it to germinate. Because you've got to look at plants across other countries as well to see how they're coping. And meadow saxifrage doesn't grow in dunes as much in other countries. When I think of saxifrage, I think of a plant growing up on a hill or on a clifftop or something like that. I don't think of it as growing in a meadow. That's right. Uh, Most of the the saxifrages are mountain-loving species. We've got alpine saxifrage, we've got yellow saxifrage, purple saxifrage. They all grow on mountaintops. Then we do have the the meadow saxifrage is the exception. It normally grows in meadow-like habitat. This isn't a meadow-like habitat, but this is the only habitat it's growing in Ireland. It was always a very, very rare species in Ireland. There are one or two other historical locations for it, but there was, it was never a widely distributed species. And this, as far as we know, this stretch of coast in Wicklow is the only place it's growing. Now, this year was fantastic for it, mm-hmm. and there were several thousand plants bloomed. Mm. The real question is now, is next year, is what's going to be here? Because when they were found by that botanist in 1985 he probably thought the same thing he came along oh this is great they're here and we never saw them again and it was declared extinct so we mightn't see this plant again but the good news is that we now know that even if we don't see it again it may resurface again in 40 years time it hasn't gone the habitat hasn't changed we thought we'd lost it it came back these seeds remain viable so it's a success story but for what reason is the concerning thing the same set of circumstances that are threatening the spring squill up along the Murrah are favouring this plant at the moment. But does everything not just go in cycles? And if we come back in 10 years' time, maybe the saxifrage will be doing poorly and the squill will be thriving. Yes, we do have natural cycles that go through. This uh, series of changes is caused by man's activities. Animals and plants take time to adapt. These changes are happening very, very fast. They're really fast by our activities. So we can't predict, we don't know what's going to happen, whether the plants will have time to adapt or not. But we are seeing changes in real time now due to climate change. We are seeing species like the spring squill suffering because of coastal erosion. We're seeing meadow saxifrage doing well because other species are being eliminated. But all of these changes are directly attributable to us. 
And really what I get from this is that it's happening so quickly. You're not talking about 30, 40, 50 years. You're talking about three or four or five years. In one case, a plant will probably be lost. Yes. And in another case, it may come back and it might be thriving again, but in such a short time. That's the worrying thing, because there isn't time to react to these things. Like, we suddenly realise, oh, this is happening, and normally we have, you have time to do environmental assessments come up with a plan a strategy and protect things we don't have time for that anymore so what can we do can we just enjoy these plans when we see them or is there anything we can do to save them yes we need to enjoy them and appreciate the environment but we need to take responsibility for our actions we need to realize that these planning ahead for the changes in 2030 and beyond that we need to do them now we need to take responsibility and accept climate change is affecting every creature and plant around us is happening because of us. We need to be responsible for our actions. We know what to do. We just need to step up and do it. But more importantly, we need to step up and do it now. Now. The time for action is now. Now, boys and girls, now. Have you got the message? To paraphrase the old adage, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. And this is where I'm going to change it. When nature is lost, everything is lost. Thanks again to Declan Murphy and Terry Flanagan. Some pictures on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, a few weeks ago, I was making a guest appearance on News Talk. I was being interviewed by Anton Savage on Saturday mornings. Anton is fantastic and it was great crack. I have to say, we were talking about my blue tits and other things. Anyway, while I was there waiting to go on air in the canteen having a cup of coffee, I met a gentleman by the name of Ken Norton, who is Ken Norton. Did I mean Graham Norton? No, Ken Norton is the secretary of the Federation of Irish Beekeepers Associations. And you know, for years and years and years, we had the late Philip McCabe on here talking about bees, and he was just terrific. But Ken is also terrific, I have to say. Now, I was chatting to Ken about flowering plants and which are the best ones for pollinators. And I said to him, then, you must come on the programme. And he said, I will. And he's about to appear in just a moment. But in the meantime, because that was a few weeks ago, people were asking me about swarming bees. And I don't know an awful lot about swarming bees, but Ken does. So he joins us now from his home in Caloocan in County Westmeath. Hi, Ken. Hello, Derek. How are you? Great, Ken. Great. Why do bees swarm? Bees are swarming because it's it's lack of management from the beekeeper. Oh dear. Number one reason why the bees swarming is they're congested in the boxes, in the hives, and they've no room. So naturally enough, if we get married and we're living in a one-bedroom apartment, all of a sudden then a set of twins come along or whatever, we need more space. So if we don't have it, somebody has to get out. Either you get out or the wife gets out or the two kids get out or whatever. And it's basically the same with the beehives. So they need to have plenty of space so as they can expand. So if they run out of space, then that's the number one reason why they will swarm. And that's what happens. And then, of course, people are getting stung, all sorts of things, which doesn't help the beekeeping craft either, you see. That's the bother. So it's, so it's really lack of knowledge. So what's your advice to people if they come across a swarm or if a swarm comes across them... What do they do? Well, if they come across a swarm, like initially what they can do is if they know a beekeeper in their area, they can contact him. If not, they can go on to our own website, irishbeekeeping.ie. So we will put them in contact with a, a local beekeeper there who, who more than likely will go out and take away the bees. However, 
over the last couple of years, due to insurance, beekeepers will no longer be climbing up on people's property or up to take bees out of a chimney mm. or take them out of the eaves or under slates because there's always the possibility that it's great when you go out, you take away the bees for them, they're lovely with you, they might give you a cup of coffee or whatever. So you're heading off and then six months later then you might get a call from them. Do you remember you came out to take away bees there before? Now my roof is leaking. So that's your other problem. So you have to be very careful. So what's that so got to we... do with you if the roof is leaking? Well, you see, we would have removed the slates to take the bees out. And you didn't you put see. the slates back? Oh, we put the slates back. Your fault. <laughs> so basically, what we, so what we do now is we would ask them if they are. See, people start to get this idea like, uh, oh, the bees. I can see them going in and out. They're in under a slate. It'll be very handy to get them. And I say, listen, Missus, you know, like we live in a house. Now we go in the hall door. That's not where we live. We've other rooms inside. So it it would be the same with the bees. Although they're going in under a slate, they could be in twenty or thirty foot. So you may have to remove several slates to get the bees out. That's the thing of it. So we normally say now, well, we'll have a quick look, see what's the story, where they are. If they're well in, we would ask that you get a builder there to take the slates off. We'll take the bees out. And then when we're finished, he can put the slates back. Now, Ken, what builder's going to get onto a roof and remove slates knowing there's a hive of bees inside there? Well, we can talk them out in the bee suit, or we can get you along if you want to. Oh, no, no, no. I did that with <laughs> Philip once and never again. And a cherry picker up in Dundalk or oh, Drogheda, yeah, I can't no remember. Problem, yeah. Never yeah, no again. Problem. And I had the sheriff's no suit problem. on and everything. I got the fright of my life. It's yeah. scary business. Right. I'm terrified and, of bees. And, and I'm uh, sure most people are. Well, you see, basically what happens with the bees, you see, bees are a, are a very clever little insect in so much as they're a bit like horses and dogs. So, like, if you're walking down the road and you're sort of scared of the neighbour's dog, he may be, he will play up on you because he knows you have this, he can sense it. He can get the scent of you, like a bit of fear. And the same with a horse. So if you go near horses or dogs and you're afraid of them, they will play, up, play act up on you. And it's exactly the same as bees. As the T-shirt says, stay calm and keep going. Anyway, exactly. listen, I was on Cape Clear recently making a television programme for RTE called The Summer Show with Nuala Carey. And it seems that most people on the island now are actually growing lavender in fields. They're producing lavender ice cream, lavender gin, lavender soap, etc, etc. Lavender, lavender, OK? And the last time I met you, you told me that one of the best plants for bees is lavender. Now, the lavender, you see, basically what happens with the lavender, like I would use, and then a lot of other beekeepers would use, lavender in their smoker. Now, like, as far as I'm concerned, as I always say to people, it's not a rock concert we're at, so don't keep squirting the, the goodness out of your smoker. Just have it puffing away there. Show it about a third, a third of your hand of lavender into the smoker, and it'll calm you down as well. It'll calm the bees down as well. The bees will be much more relaxed. So, so don't just stand there and squirt it straight into their face. You can just drift a, a couple of puffs of the smoke across. Now, always remember, as I say to people, the smoker's only a deterrent to keep the bees calm if they get out of hand. Now, that's enough. If we're outside and someone's having a cigarette, we can probably get away with it. But if they're puffing the smoky into our face continually, we will lose the head. 
And it's exactly the same with the little bees. So you just drift it across. So the lavender then will calm the bees down, as I to say to beekeepers, if you use enough, it'll calm you down as well. So leading on from that, yeah. the main, apart from mankind, as I say, the, the next worst enemy then of the bee is a little mite called a varroa mite, mm -hmm. which lives on the back of the bee. So that'll be there for several months. Now, number one, we've no control over where, where our bees will go. So when they go out, if they get on lavender, this little varroa hates the scent of the lavender and it will fall off while the, while the bee is out foraging or bringing in nectar or pollen. So also in the hive then, I would use, when the lavender's in bloom, I would use several strips of this lavender put in on top of the frames. Now, because I put in a little foreign object, the bees aren't too happy with me. So 10 or 12 of them then will try and get that down through the frames and out the door. And my theory is then by the time they do this, at least 500, if not more, will have come in contact with the lavender. So that's the other thing. Now, if you have enough of it, you see, what I do is I would have a half an acre of lavender in front of my hives. Now, always remember, bees aren't like a little helicopter. They don't come out the door and go straight up in the air. They're like little small aircraft. So they have to build up a bit of height first before they take off. So by doing what I do, they have to pass through the lavender, whether they want to or not, on the way out and on the way back. So that's one thing about the lavender. So it's good to get rid of the varroa mite. It is indeed, yeah, it is well, what's indeed. What's lavender yeah. honey like? Lavender honey is beautiful. Yeah, because they have that on Cape Clear as well. I just didn't get to That's taste right. it. That's right. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's nice and sweet. It's a nice sweet. It's a lovely colour. It's a sort of a lightish colour. It's beautiful. I want to ask you something different now. I mean, you've been extolling the virtues of lavender and the lovely purple colour. But people are saying to me, and I don't know if there's any truth in it now, and you're the very man to ask, that all this proliferation of honeybees and hives, everybody's becoming a beekeeper, there's honeybee hives everywhere, and they're taking the bite out of the mouths of the bumblebees and the solitary bees, because they're using all the flowers that those creatures would use. So the more honeybees we have, the harder it is on the bumblebees. Now, is there any truth at all in that, or is that a load of raw mesh? Well, there's not much truth in it, in so much as, you know, the honeybee doesn't interfere with the bumblebee. Now, as you and I know, there are a lot of flowers, plants and otherwise, which the bees won't go near because, let's say, for example, there's white clover and there's purple clover. Now, the bees, the honeybee will only use the white clover because the purple is too deep for the honeybee to go into the, in to get the nectar. Whereas the bumblebee will, that'll be no problem to the bumblebee. So there is plenty of stuff out there which the honeybee will use and there's plenty of stuff out there which the bumblebee will use. Part of the problem is that during, we say, the COVID, when the COVID came, people were more inclined to go out on nature walks than here, there, whatever. And we were getting in the Federation and both personally then, phone calls from people day and night saying they were out having a little walk here, there, whatever, and all of a sudden then honeybees were coming out of the hedges, coming out of the ground and attacking them. These were not honeybees, these were wasps. And what has happened is we had initially only one type of wasp here, which was a thing called vulgaris. 
A couple of years ago, this other one came in, which is called Germanica. Now, for some reason or other, Germanica has decided that instead of building its nest in a shed or out the back or here, there, and whatever, they would build them in these burrows where the bumblebees were living. So they have shoved out quite a lot of the bumblebees out of where they were originating and where they had their nests. So they shoved them out entirely. And that is part of the problem. But leading on from that, as I would say, 200 years ago when I was a young fella and had hair, I lived up in Dublin up to 20 years ago. And as soon as we left Dublin and we got out to Luke and our leaks lived, we were in the country. And when we got beyond that, then, when we got as far as Minute, we were in the wilds. And all on the way down, we could see these lovely wildflower meadows. They are all long gone. So that is part of the problem. We need to set up corridors for all types of wildlife. So what happens is, okay, we all have to agree with progress and so on, but if we have a a case that a, a housing estate is going up or an industrial estate is going up, all types of wildlife, including be- little bees, are moved further on down the road. So we have to make allowance for that. Now, to compensate that, for, for the last couple of years, I've been talking day and night with county councils about instead of spending a fortune on putting up vibrant flowers, as they call it, at the roundabouts, why not turn it into a wildflower meadow? And I say quite a lot of them have taken up the idea. And it's beautiful to be heading up and you get to one or two roundabouts. And instead of having these vibrant flowers looking up, you have a wildflower meadow, which is beautiful. But things like begonias and petunias and roses and tulips, I mean, they're the people have in gardens, they're not ever very attractive to bees. So, I mean, they really are, um, what would you call them, they're, they're Rosie fans or they're Tipperary fans or they're Clare fans because they love the colours purple, which lavender is, and yellow. They're the good colours for flowers for bees. So, I mean, I think when people are doing wildflower meadows, they're the colours of the flowers that appear anyway in them. So they, they work all around and there is a great deal more now of wildflower meadows than there used to be. Anyway, speak to me about rhododendron. Do bees visit rhododendron, honeybees? Do they make honey from it? And is the honey poisonous? What's the story on rhododendron? Now, the thing about being on the rhododendron, now, you see, like everything is you and I know, there's various varieties of of the rhododendron. Now, um, basically what people talked about was, well, they will go out and they will bring it back. It might poison them, all that sort of crack. So if it's a, if it's a question that it's going to poison them, they will never bring it back to make honey because they won't live that long to come back to the hive bringing in nectar or pollen from the rhododendron. Now, to do an experiment, then up on one of our aviaries, we put up, well, we didn't put them up, they were there already, the rhododendrons, and we, and we more or less had the bees shoved in in between where the rhododendrons were, there was half an acre of it or whatever. Some bees went to it, others didn't. And we never got honey because we got the honey tested at the end of this experiment and there was no there was no trace of rhododendron at all in it. So that's the story there. I don't think they they even bother with it. Oh yeah, so they they have more they have enough sense, or at least they don't make honey from it. But you're saying about testing honey. I mean when you test honey, can you tell where it comes from? Can you tell if it's Irish honey? Can you tell what flowers it's made from? Do we test honey in Ireland? If I go into the supermarket and buy a jar of honey, how do I know it, it's what it says on the tin at all? 
Well, that's a very good question. Now, number one, we don't have a laboratory here in Ireland that can test honey. We have a laboratory here in Ireland that can test for residue in the honey, but we have to send it to Germany to get tested. Now, at the moment, there's huge fraud going on with, as we would call it, fraudulent honey. Now, two-thirds two -thirds of the honey that would be on sale in the supermarkets, both here and all over the world, is not from the country of origin. So, in other words, anything here in the supermarkets is not being produced in Ireland. Now, there may be... Now, hang, hang a on a second, Ken. Hold, Ken. hold on a, hold on a second, Go Ken. On. Now, is it claiming to be dainty in Erin? Is it claimed to be... Made in Ireland. No, it's not, no. So then that's no, okay, not... so long as it's not claiming to be made in Ireland. Yeah, no, it's not claiming to be made in Ireland. So, like, it's a matter of reading the small print. It will say it contains a blend of EU honey and non-EU honey. So then you have to go looking here, there, whatever, and you might see on the top of the jar or on the bottom of the lid, uh, produce of Spain or produce of Chile or yeah, China what's wrong with or whatever. That? But that doesn't mean it's bad honey, Ken. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's bad honey, but uh, there is the other problem that there was um, an EU directive set up there recently, which included 16 countries, Ireland was included in that, which was to look at what they called fraudulent honey. It's included in the number 10 list with the FBI, fraudulent honey. And they have raided several places all over the world and there would be barrels of honey there. Yeah. And then when they get it tested, it's, it's not, not honey, honey at, all. at all. Okay, but that's no. not to say that the honey that's on sale on the shelves in the supermarkets in Ireland, regardless of its origin, is not honey. Oh, no, correct, correct. Oh, no, we're not saying that. There would be a lot of packers here who would buy in several tonne of honey, pack it into, into bottles and sell it wherever, be it farmers' markets or supermarkets or whatever. Now, they may blend in some Irish honey in with that to give it an extra bit of flavour or give it more of a flavour or less of a flavour or whatever. So it's not pure 100% honey, yeah. regardless of whether it came from Ireland or next door but, or but whatever. You, you would suggest to people that it's probably best to buy their local honey. That's where you're coming from. It would be because, you see, at least, at least in that respect, we have traceability. Ken, it was lovely to speak with you. And next time you're in Dublin, pop in and say hello. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Derek. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Good luck. Now, I want to say a quick hello before we finish up to Dr. Matthew Jebb of the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. Richard mentioned at the top of the programme that he took the grandchildren in, boys and girls, all keen photographers, to see our RTE Ion Nature Wildlife Photography exhibition. The top ten finalists, including the winner, are in there, along with some notables. But he wouldn't have picked the winner, he said. He would have picked a different photograph altogether. You see, it's very subjective. What would you pick? Did you see them? And can you still see them? The answer is yes, you still can, but not in Glasnevin because the pictures are on the move, like the moving statues. Matthew Jeb can tell us more from his home in the gardens. Matthew, where is the display moving to? We are moving it to Portumna Castle and Gardens, so it will be on show there by the 12th of August, which is Heritage Week, an appropriate moment for it to appear there. How did people react to the display in the gardens? People are always astonished at the diversity of the images, and I think this year, again, you know, we've got everything from 
wasps right through to foxes and it, it, it really heightens the experience of seeing them in the outdoors and just like in the gardens here the exhibition will be outside at Portumna Castle Gardens and it um, it looks fabulous there the the previous exhibitions have appeared there and they've got a very neat way of displaying them on their lawns. And that's another site managed by the Office of Public Works. Absolutely. This is a house that was originally the de Burgo family in the 17th century. It was destroyed by a fire in the 19th century, but it's been fully restored by the Office of Public Works. And as with the house, so with the garden. The garden is a, a remarkable insight into what one of the gardens looked like back in the um, early 18th century garden layout. And it's got amazing views down to Loch Derg. It is an, an astonishing place. So once again, just remind people when they can expect to see our display. So the exhibition will move down to Portumna Castle Gardens at the beginning of August and it'll be opening in time for Heritage Week, which is the 12th of August onwards. Matthew, thank you very much indeed. Fantastic. Not at all. Not at all, Derek. That's great. And that's pretty much all we have time for today. My thanks to our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating, and our researcher, John Bella Riley. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash moody. And don't forget to podcast the programme. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye, Derek and co. And as you were saying there, if you want to listen back to the programme, various ways you can do it. You can also do it via our website, rte.ie forward slash radio one. As Derek said, it's also available as a podcast podcast or on the RTE radio app. And Derek and the team will be here again next Monday night just after 11. Now though, uh, just after 10 even, because we are heading to 11 right now and Cottle and Late Date. Trevor, thanks so much for that. Safe home to you. Late Date with Cottle Murray on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, hope you're doing well and you're very welcome to Monday's programme. It's Joni Mitchell to start. a chance there was just a dream some of us had still a lot of lines to see but i wouldn't want to stay here it's too old and cold and settled in its ways here all the california california coming home i'm gonna see the folks i dig i'll even kiss a sunset pig california i'm coming home Who did the goat dance very well He gave me back my smile But he kept my camera in a cell Oh, the rogue, the red, red rogue He cooked good omelettes and stews And I might have stayed on with him there But my heart cried out for you California Oh, California Coming home Oh, make me feel good Rock and roll band I'm your biggest fan California, I'm coming home Oh, it gets so lonely When you're walking And the streets are full of strangers All the news are read Just give you Give you-
to Spain, went to a party down a red dirt road. There were lots of pretty people there, reading Rolling Stone, reading Vogue. I said, how long can you hang around? I said, a week, maybe two, just until my skin turns brown and I'm going home to California. Take me as I am Strung out on another man California I'm a-coming home